Oh man, uh, again, as uh, Matt Duell said a little bit ago, uh, so, so glad to have you, particularly if you're a guest with us um, this morning. Uh, it's no small deal that you chose to come and spend some of your day uh, with us. And if Mission Point is home for you and you're part of the family here, again, so good to be um, together this morning. My name is Kondo. I am one of the pastors here on staff. And um, this morning, I have the privilege of continuing our series uh, that we are calling The Truth About. The Truth About. And uh, you don't have to watch the news for too long. You don't have to spend too much time scrolling through the headlines on your social media um, platform of choice to uh, realize that the nation is at odds. It's quickly dividing, and, and tension is continuing to rise, and people are being pitted against each other, taking sides against each other around some tense and controversial issues, issues like the issue of immigration, um, issues like the, the Syrian refugee crisis. Should we take um, refugees in? Should we close the borders to them? What ki kind of evaluation should we do before we let them in? What if some of the terrorist groups that are out to get us sneak in through these refugees and, and on and on the tension goes? Um, surrounding issues of terror and, and what to do in these seasons in which we are truly and legitimately afraid. Surrounding the tense issues of race. What color matters and what color doesn't. And tension just continues to escalate and escalate. And then add on top of all of that the election cycle and, and which candidate is going to be the right candidate to lead America into the next phase of utopia. And I don't agree with your candidate choice. How can you honestly vote for him? And on and on the tension goes in this country. That hasn't concerned us as much. We would expect that to happen at a national level. What has uh, concerned us as a leadership team is the ways in which we're seeing some of this tension, some of this division seep into the church. The way we are starting to see God's people go after each other and go after people that disagree with, the way we're starting to see wedges between believers as we stare at each other and say, if you believe that, I'm standing on this side of you. And if you believe that, I'm standing on this side of you. And in an era when the church ought to band together, in an era where we ought to put the light of Jesus Christ on display, it concerns us that we are starting to dim our light. We're starting to lower our voice and our testimony because of the ways we're entering in and engaging in the ways that we are allowing these issues to divide us. And so in this series, we want to ask the question, how do we engage some of these tense and controversial issues? How do we enter in? And most importantly, what would Jesus say to us if he were speaking about some of these controversial issues? And then more importantly, what would Jesus say about the people involved in these issues and the way we ought to treat them? And um, one thing that we are, are convinced of is that if we agree on some fundamental principles as a church, we will not only make it through this tense and tough season together, but we will put the light of Jesus on display in fresh and unprecedented ways. And we started talking about some of these principles last week, and I do, I believe, if we can agree about just these two things to start, they will set us on a trajectory in which we will find ourselves being the church in this culture and in this country that Jesus wants us to be. And here are the two principles. If we can agree on these, church, here's the first one. It's the idea that I am a Christian first and an American second. My primary allegiance is to heaven. The greatest portion of my efforts are committed to seeing heaven full and its king famous. The primary lens through which I view my attitudes, my words, my choices is my heavenly citizenship first, not my earthly 
one. The question that I'm asking is, what's good for heaven? I know it feels good for me. I know it may feel good for this country. But the question, first and foremost, is what, what's good for heaven? I am a Christian first and an American second. If we embrace that, it will revolutionize the way we treat each other. Because if nothing else, we will recognize immediately, if we are citizens of heaven, we are going to live in that kingdom as brothers and sisters forever and ever and ever. And I'm going to choose to have beef with you over some candidate who's going to live for a few years, over a nation that's not going to last into eternity. No, I'm a citizen of heaven first, a Christian first, an American second, which leads to the second idea, if we can agree on this, that whenever principles of heaven clash with the priorities of country, heaven wins every time. Can we agree on that? That if the Bible says something, and the country says something else. We choose to do what the Bible says, no matter what the risk, no matter what the cost. No matter the risk, no matter the cost, we go with the principles of heaven. And I'm telling you, if we agree with just those two assertions, we won't only make it through these dark times together, but this country will see Jesus Christ painted through his church. And the reason I know that is because in John chapter 17, Jesus says that the church, my people, would be united because if they are united, the world will know that you have sent me. I want the world to know. And so you can imagine why it's chilling to us when we see that the church dividing from each other instead of coming together. And I think it begins if we can agree that we're citizens of heaven first and that what heaven says goes above what culture or country says. With that said, we want to talk a little bit more about the issue of guns. And um, please relax if you can. Um, we're not going to try and pretend to know all the issues and address all the issues and somehow inform you of things that you didn't know um, before. And uh, we definitely have no intention of trying to come up with a solution to tell the government what um, to do about this issue. Uh, I just want to share some pastoral concerns that I have, that we have, about some of the churches, the Christians' posture when it comes to our guns. And I wonder if some of you right now are like, man, I would rather he talked about sex or money, but guns, oh, that's, a, that's, that's become the third culprit, the no-no. But uh, we're going to talk about it nonetheless. If you have a copy of the scripture, um, Exodus chapter 14, uh, meet me in Exodus chapter 14. And uh, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, uh, some gentlemen are going to come up the aisles, and you can just slip your hand up, let them know you need one, and they will get one in your hands. If you don't own a copy, please, no need to leave this behind. Take it with you. It is our gift to you. Um, so uh, a, a little bit of context um, for this story. The Israelites have been living as slaves in Egypt for almost 400 years. And the Egyptians hate the Israelites, and they make no secret of it, in the way they have relentlessly abused them in the most inhumane ways possible. As a result of the slavery, the Israelites cry out to God, please come and liberate us. Please come and set us free. God hears their cry, and he finally sends rescue in the form of an Israelite man named Moses. Through a variety of miracles, God does what he says he would do. He sets his people free. He liberates them from the shackles in Egypt and sets them on route towards their ultimate utopia, this place called Canaan. So off they go, breathing the fresh air of freedom. But they don't get too far um, before the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, has a little bit of a change of heart. 
like, mm, this is not a good idea. So he grabs his best and his, his strongest military um, force, and he goes after the Israelites to either kill them or to bring them back and subject them to a worse form of slavery than what they had endured to that particular point. And so let, let's jump into the story um, right there. Um, Exodus chapter 14, starting at verse 10. Uh, here's what it says. It says, as Pharaoh appro approached the Israelites, they looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord, and then they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, which they didn't, by the way. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert, right? So here's the scene that's painted in these words. These newly liberated Israelites are on the beach. They're tanning. They're having a fish Friday. They're having themselves a blast when they start to feel and they start to hear a familiar sound in the distance, a tremor that they had heard all too many times before. And so they raise their eyes, and lo and behold, their worst nightmare imaginable. Um, where the Israelites were camped, they had the Red Sea in front of them, they had some big old jagged mountains to the sides of them. And now they have the most terrifying military force on the planet charging towards them. There's a word for that. Trapped. Hosed. Hemmed in. There is nowhere for the Israelites to go at this point. So their first reaction, understandably, is panic. They are absolutely terrified. They're scared. And wouldn't you be? If people you know are out to destroy you and they've proven it in every way imaginable and now inching towards you and you are hemmed in, there is nowhere for you to go. I'd be afraid. I'd panic. I'd kind of freak out. Just say it. Nobody on that beach that day wasn't convinced that they were going to die there, except maybe one, maybe one, guy, one, guy, one guy. But they were convinced this was the end of their journey, the end of their story. Their first action after they panic is prayer. They cry out to God, please help us. We've seen your power on display. We know you are the God who gets uh, us out of impossible situations. You've done it before, and if you could do it before, would you please do it again? So after they panic and after they pray, they turn to protest, which is so fascinating. In true schizophrenic, schizophrenic fashion, they go from, listen, we're going to cry out to God, and then they cry out against Moses. We're going to turn our voices up to God, and then we're going to turn against Moses. And um, they, they turn on him, and they say, whose side are you on anyway? You've probably been planning this the whole time. This was your big scheme to get us out of Egypt <laughs> so you can have us hemmed in and die in the desert. And so they freak out. They turn against Moses in protest. In the heat of this impending terror, they are understandably panicked. You would be, I would be. So they pray to God, and then they protest to Moses, and then they turn back to panic a little bit. More. But check out Moses' response in all of this. Verse 13. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you would never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be. Whoa, hang on a second, Moses. Hang on a second. Quick timeout. These people have abused your people. They've abused the Israelites for generations and generations and generations. 
And now they're charging towards us. They don't just hate us. We know that. But now they're mad because they lost their firstborn sons on account of us. And here they are charging in our direction. Where's the war cry, Moses? Where is the charge and take down as many Egyptians as you possibly can? See, see, because we've heard about you, Moses, we know that there was a time when you saw one of these Egyptians coming after and assaulting one of your Israelites, and you rose up something, and you stirred, and you put that guy in the ground. Where's that, Moses? Stand still and trust the Lord. You went and got soft on us, Moses. Or God got a hold of him. This story, I, 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 I look at this story and it reminds me so much of the season in which we're living right now. It, it reminds me so much of our experience as a church in this country right now. It, it's really compelling to me. So anyway... Uh, let's talk about guns. Uh, we, we looked at the Bible because, I mean, what kind of church service would it be if you showed up and we didn't look at the Bible? So now that we've done that, uh, let's talk a little bit about guns. And listen, uh, before we get into it, can I just start by saying something to help us get over ourselves a little bit? Thanks. The gun control debate has been going on for decades. Every creative argument that you have thought up and voiced to your spouse, and they're like, oh my goodness, that is so deep. It's been thought of before. You're not that special. Maybe to your spouse you are, but to the rest of us, and this not so much. Every emotion that has risen up in you has been experienced before. This is not a new tension. This is not a new controversy. This pattern has happened before. This song has played before. Which means the only real question is are we going to respond like everyone has responded before? Or are we going to choose a better pattern? Is our leg of this journey going to leave? a better story in its wake. Because the rest of the stuff happening around us has happened before. This controversy has lived for decades. Um, in uh, 1934, uh, around the time when gangsters like Al Capone and John Dillinger were um, on the loose, there were some bloody, bloody murder sprees. Uh, like the Valentine's Day massacre, which happened in, in 1929, in which eight people were just brutally executed with guns. When that happened, the nation panicked. There was fear. People were afraid, and understandably so. This could potentially happen to us. And in response to that, the government stepped in with what actually ended up being the first gun laws. And at that time, they instituted a version of monitoring the exchange, the trade of guns. So a certain population felt a little sigh of relief on account of the government's decision. But another set of the population rose up and they protested. And they said, the government has no right to tamper with our Second Amendment right to bear arms. And the tension was born. Does that sound familiar? Fast forward to 1968. Now, JFK, MLK Jr., and Malcolm X have all been assassinated by guns. The nation is gripped with fear. There is panic, and understandably so. If these powerful figures can be taken out, what about the rest of us? And in response to that panic, the government responds. And they create even more stringent laws. 
and they introduce restrictions, this time restrictions on who can purchase guns, what kind of people can purchase guns. A certain population breathes a sigh of relief. Another population rises up in protest. You have no right to do that. And if the government starts to dictate who can buy a gun and who can't buy a gun, what are they going to do next if not come in and take our guns? And the tension escalates. Does that sound familiar? Let's fast forward a, a, a number of years to 1993. Now at this point, in response to the failed murder attempt of President Reagan the decade before that, there's been brewing this movement and this motion because again the nation was gripped in fear and they've started to panic. And so the government steps in, and the Brady Intervention Act is instituted. And this act re-energizes, it reinforces the restrictions from the 1960s and 1970s. And it doesn't only start to dictate who can purchase guns, it introduces the idea of background checks. Whew! Sweet relief, Jesus! says one portion of the population, while another portion of the population rises up and says, how dare you mess with our fundamental right to bear arms? It is not up to you to interpret the Constitution and decide who can and who cannot, and then to start discriminating with background checks. And there's protest in response to that. In about 2002, uh, there was an act on the part of the Supreme Court to reinforce the Second Amendment rights of citizens, just reinforcing the idea that you do have the right to bear arms and you do have the right to use those arms in recreational and legal um, means. For example, if you feel like you're under duress and you're under threat, you can use that arm to defend yourself. Yes, a victory to this side. This side says, oh my goodness, can you imagine what happens if there's freedom and everybody has guns? People will start hurting. No, it's not guns that hurt people, dummy. It's people with guns that hurt people. And the tension continues to escalate. Flash forward 10 years. Now it's 2012. Now in response to the absolute tragic massacre in Newtown, Connecticut, in that school, and in addition to that, the massacre in the theater in Aurora, in Colorado. The nation is not just grief-stricken. We are freshly panicking. I can still remember being so nervous about sending my kids to school for a little while. And if you're a parent, you can probably remember going through a little season of that. We are panicked afresh. So the government steps in once again and tightens the law on guns. And a certain group of people feel relief, and a certain group of people, group of people feel like that's an absolute violation of our constitutional right, and they protest. That's been the pattern. That's been the story, which leads us to our time, our era. And wasn't it just seven months ago that nine people were executed with guns in that Carolina church shooting? Well, wasn't it just four months ago that nine people were executed on that campus in Oregon by gunfire? Wasn't it just two months ago that that murder spree happened in San Bernardino, California? Wasn't it just yesterday? Six people were executed again. But in response particularly to California, we were chilled. And adds to the fact, it's not just guns now. There are rumors that there is association to terror groups that we know for a fact they want to obliterate us any way they can. And you're telling me there's a possibility that ISIS is now on our doorstep? There was mass panic, and that's what is still gripping the nation right now. And so in response to that, the government spoke in. 
and President Obama started to make vows and promises about stringently tightening the laws all the more. No one on the no-fly list should be able to purchase a gun. No one who fits these criteria should be able to purchase a gun. And in response to that, people are like, yeah, go, President. And there's another group of people that are saying, you are using this tragedy as a trampoline to leap into this place where you take away our guns. And we feel panicked all of a sudden again. This has been the pattern for decades and decades and decades. Something threatening happens. Something tragic happens. We feel panic. The government responds in what they believe is going to serve and protect its people. The people don't like it, so they protest. And then panic breaks out in response to the protest. And if I don't like your protest, well, I protest your protest. And then there's division and there's chaos, which is where we are today. And again, throw in the mix this time the possibility of terrorism, church, we are scared. We are panicked. And here's how it's working for us. Pharaoh is coming in one direction. And the Red Sea is infringing our ability to protect ourselves, to get away, to save ourselves. We feel hemmed in. All abusers of the Second Amendment rights who are going on these murder sprees are coming to get us with their guns. And now terrorists are joining their ranks and they're coming after us. And the government is standing like a sea, attempting to take away our only means of protecting ourselves. We feel hemmed in. Don't cage me, bro. And we're panicking. We're afraid. We've been here before. The only question is, will ours be a different story? Will ours be a better pattern? Or will we join the pattern of panic and protest? And panic and protest. And protest and panic and panic and protest. I wonder if we don't have an opportunity as a church to tell a better story. To respond a little bit differently. What concerns me is that the church is playing into the same pattern and we don't even realize it. We're just falling in line. And 10 years from now, somebody would just tell a story about our era when we panicked and protested. Can we tell a more compelling story of a better kingdom? Can the world see what hope looks like when it's hemmed in? And so I do, I just want to make some recommendations. Um, Call them pastoral recommendations, if you will. Um, And you notice very quickly about these recommendations that they are so elementary. Because I'm convinced what Jesus Christ calls his church to be, he calls his church to be regardless of what's happening in the world around us. So if these feel like they are Sunday school pedestrian, please, good. Then they should be really easy to apply and to put in to practice. Here's my first plea. Can we firstly pray? Can we go back to that ancient pattern of the saints of old and first pray? Uh, One of the great privileges of living in this great country are the rights afforded to us. And, and one of those rights is the right to freedom of speech, which I think is, is really cool, except when some of you use it. But other than that, I think it's, it's really cool. And I do. There's a part of me that believes heaven would say, use it. Use your rights. Use them well, but use them. Don't waste your democracy. 
Too many millions of people wish they were in a situation that you are in. Uh, too many people have died to afford us the privilege of being able to use said rights. Use your rights. And if your rights are threatened, raise your voice. You have the right to do that. You have the right to protest. That's one of the beauties of living in a democracy. Use your right to vote your conscience. Use your rights to raise your voice. For goodness sakes, call your representative and share your concerns with them. But what I'm saying is, can we first, though, pray? As a citizen of heaven first, can my first call be to my first king? Can we return to that place of the saints of old where we meet panic first with prayer? Not protest, not some act of protection, but prayer. Look at what it says in 1 Timothy 2. We looked at this uh, passage a number of weeks ago during the, the worship service. But this is what the, the, the principles of heaven, the constitution of heaven would say. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, especially for kings and all those in authority, that they may live peacefully, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. When threats arise and I long for peace, heaven says, great, first pray. I'm concerned about the, the government and what the government is doing with my rights. Great, you know you can actually talk to your government, beauty of democracy, but first pray and pray for those in authority. I feel hemmed in and afraid. Yeah, first pray. I feel heartbroken for those who've experienced loss once again in Michigan. Yes, but first pray. Heaven says the first action you ought to take when threatened or hemmed in is to pray. Can we go back to that? And here's why that matters so much. Um, because when we first pray, we say it is ultimately God who puts kings and presidents and pharaohs and representatives in their place. And it's ultimately God who takes them down. Did you realize your dad is bad like that? Who wins the election this for? You have some uh, voice in that. That's democracy. But ultimately, ultimately, God puts in place the powers that rule over us. Which means it's just smart. I'm going to want to go and talk to the person who's ultimately making the call who's ultimately calling the shots. When I first pray, I say I believe that's who God is. But if you're doing more whining about political positions and personnel on social media than praying, if you're doing more going at people with your words than praying, you've forgotten that you're first a citizen of heaven. You've forgotten that God ultimately makes the call. And we are muting our voice. We are limiting our influence in so many ways. Because busy fingers without bended knees make for a weak church. You have the right to tweet. You have the right to talk. You have the right to call. But if we are not praying first, the very power that moves a nation. Because if my people who are called by my name would pray, I'll do something profound in their time. Let's be a church that prays first. Regardless of where we land, where we land on the gun issue, can we be a church that prays first about these issues, about these tragedies for these families? Regardless of where we land with a political figure, and can we first pray for our political leaders? This country's greatest hope is 
the church praying. So I don't know what your pattern is in moments of panic. But is, is, is prayer a priority in your world? Are you just talking a lot to everybody else except the person who ultimately makes the call? Church, let it be said of us, they prayed. Oh, come on, Moses, prayer, where's the war cry? Where's the what are we going to do? That's okay, but first. Second thing, can we greatly trust? Can we greatly trust? The Israelites were hemmed in by threats on both sides, and that terrifying moment of being hemmed in did for them what it will always do for us as well. It reveals, when we're threatened, it reveals who I trust most, what I trust the most. Because trust is most clearly revealed in the face of something that's threatening to undo me. Listen, church, we can sing about trusting God, and we've done it for years and years and years. We can talk about trusting God, but you have no idea how much you trust God until you're hemmed in. You have no idea how much you trust God until a real threat is crouching towards you. The Israelites in this story had a great opportunity to finally find out what they trusted most. And I feel like the church is in a similar situation where we get to discover who and what do we trust the most. And I can almost hear heaven cheering for us to the echo of the words of Hebrews. Look at what it says in chapter 13 of Hebrews, verse 6. It says, so we say with full confidence or with full trust, and oh Lord, may that be us, that the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Why? What can mere mortals do to me? That's so stirring, so compelling. Uh, the Hebrews um, the church in, in, in this particular book was being persecuted by the government. They were being persecuted by family members. Their property was being confiscated. Many of them were being thrown in prison. Some of them were being killed. They were hemmed in by threat in every direction. And in the midst of all of that, the author screams, we will say with full trust, God is our helper. What's the worst a human being can do to me? There was this understanding in, in our spiritual forefathers that who ends up in power is ultimately up to God, so we pray. But there was also this belief that what ultimately happens to me is up to God, so I ultimately trust. I, I trust him. It's not up to the Pharaoh. It's not up to the sea. It's not up to the government. It's not up to a president. It's not up to anyone in authority. It's not up to anyone abusing this Second Amendment right. It's not up to a terror group. God makes a first and final call about what happens to me. Watch what happens when a church truly believes that. Threats will reveal what I believe makes the ultimate call about my life, my well-being, and the lives of the people I care most about. Now, it doesn't mean we, we don't do what we can to protect ourselves or, or to get away, but we don't ultimately depend on our abilities to protect ourselves. So, so let me say this, um, because here's, here's what's concerning to me. And it is this. I, I do. I, I worry that, that in the midst of feeling hemmed in, in the midst of some of the threats that we are presently experiencing, there is a faint but a confident declaration I'm hearing whispers of in the church that's saying, in guns we trust. 
if they take away our guns, what will we do? How will we possibly protect ourselves? We must panic. We must protest. Which you have the right to do. You have the right to bear arms. And no one should be able to infringe on that right. My concern is not about what you carry, though. My concern for the church is about who carries you. It's not about your heat. It's about your hope, honestly. My concern is that when tragedy falls and threat rises and we get scared, we reach first for what we trust most in, and it cannot be our guns. It must be our God. A gun has its place, but it can never be the first place. There's someone who decides the number of days of our lives, and it's not a terrorist. It's never been. And there is someone who can ensure that we live out the full measure of the number of our days. And it's not a gun. The saints of old believed this. If God is for me, and so we say with full trust, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? This has concerned me. And, and my prayer is that we would be able, regardless of where you land with guns, we would be able to say, in God we ultimately trust for our well-being. Because I'm telling you, man, I mean, if, if, uh, if, if our saints in, you know, in, in, in China had access to, 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 to firearms, they wouldn't be persecuted the way they are. If our Sudanese brothers and sisters, I mean, if they could pack some heat, life would be better for them. Man, if Jesus could just have, if the saints of old, nobody would have suffered, no one would have. The problem is they're being persecuted because they don't have enough fire. No we will say with full confidence our trust is in the Lord. That that would be our greatest confidence. Can we greatly trust our great God? Can we be that church? Can that be our pattern? That we feel panic, yes. But then we pray. And we greatly trust. Our one more concern and uh, this is going to be the toughest. That's why I saved it for the end so I can uh, leave and you can all go and, and process this stuff. Uh, because we, we have the right to bear arms. Um, we even have the stand your ground prerogative in states like Indiana, which says if you feel there's a reasonable threat against you or against someone that you care about, um, you can put the assailant down in self-defense, and that is within your legal rights. That's allowed. That is within your rights. And this is, you know, the, the common scenario we use that says if someone breaks into my house and is threatening to harm me or my loved ones, I can put them down to protect myself and to protect the people I love. And again, can I say it? An American living in Indiana, you have that right, and no one should ever take that away from you. But the question is, how will I engage that earthly right in a heavenly way? Because here's what you know as well as I do. Just because I have a right doesn't mean it's right to use it. I believe women have certain rights, but I hope they never use them. I would plead with them never to use them, not because they don't have the right. The question still remains, what's the right thing to do with my right? 
what would heaven say that I should do with my earthly right? Um, in the heavenly economy, love wins over rights. And because that's true, I think what I'm wrestling through is how will we love with our rights? How will we love with our right to bear arms? Because you know as well as I do, there is no commandment about what you should do with your arms, but there is a commandment about what you should do with love. How does that work? This is so tense, and I'm so glad I don't have to resolve it. I just get to throw the questions out there, and then y'all can all go and process it together. And I'll tell you what muddies the waters for me is when Jesus says, you've heard it said in your world and in your country, hate your enemies and put them down. I say, in heaven's economy, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. Hmm. I really wish you hadn't said that, Jesus. That makes things really complicated for me. And it sure does. Praise the Lord for the Holy Spirit. Love your enemy? Do you know what that means? Now again, feel free to feel a chill. That's okay. Do you know what that means? <laughs> Jesus is saying, your enemy is now your loved one. Um, now try the story again. If, if my enemy is hurting my loved one, Jesus says, no, 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 your enemy is your loved one, so start again. Shoot! If someone I love is hurting someone else I love, what do I do? And all of a sudden you realize it's messier than we've said it to be when love is what reigns overall. Now let me be honest with you. I don't know what I would do if I come home and someone is in my house and they are hurting my kids. I don't know, but I suspect that some Shaka Zulu prehistoric African warrior would emerge. Because listen, you don't mess with the people that I I love. I don't care if somebody's like, your son started it. And in fact, he hurt my kid on the playground, so I'm here to enact some pain. I don't care what my son did. You tell me what my son did. Let me put the hurt on him. As for you, you do not touch my kids. Ooh, we would have a moment. In fact, some of you men who have never sang a worship song in this church are ready to say amen right there. Here's what makes it tense. Just hang with me for a second. We're almost done. What if I told you that in the story, the house is the world, and the kids are the human race, and the father is God. Would you still enjoy the story? Because my Bible says, for God so loved the world, the bad people, the good people, the sucky people, the murderers, he loved them all, that he sent his son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you still like the story where God is the one who says, if somebody comes up into my house, my world, and hurts one of my loved ones, no, but you don't understand. They've been hurting people. They tried to hurt someone else. Well, you tell me about it. Let me spank them. What I've called you to do is love, love, love. But what if it costs us? What if it's risky? Now you know what Jesus did for you. Because no greater love is there than that someone who laid down his life was friend. The problem is Jesus says your enemy is now your friend. What do you do? What Jesus tells us is, listen, anybody in this country can love the people they like and prefer. Heaven is so radical that it invites us to love the people who hate us and want to do great harm to us. The question is, how do I use my rights to live that out? How do I use my rights to carry out love? And what's concerning me is the language in the church where we are starting to talk about those people who don't deserve and those people deserve this and these people deserve this. And Jesus says, while you were all sinners, Jesus died for you. 
the story of the gospel is that we put him down. So what do you do? And the answer is, I don't know. But I know love must reign, and I know the church must tell a different story. I know we must hold a different posture. I don't know what would you do kind of here in that situation. You sound so heroic up there. No, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what we should do. But let me say this much. Nobody saw a Red Sea parting. They thought they were hemmed in. They thought they had no option but to do what was most instinctive. But Moses said, no, trust God and watch what he does. He has options you've never heard about. If you would simply pray first, if you would greatly trust, and if you would mostly love, did you know that dead people can come back from the grave? I fear that we've made self-preservation the greatest goal, the greatest good, when Jesus says, no, your greatest calling is to love your enemies and primarily share the gospel with them. And I'm thinking, no, my greatest calling is to survive, son, and so I'm going to survive by any means necessary. And Jesus is saying, seriously, worst case scenario, you die. Mm Mm-mm. And I wonder if there isn't room for us to become so much more radical when love reigns. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would give us a courage to step into the vulnerability of that feeling and figure out what does it look like for us to love, even with our right to bear arms. Will ours be a different story? Will we maybe start a different pattern? Will the history books look back on this era and say, oh, They broke from the panic and the protest, and they went to prayer and to trust and to love, and the nation was never the same. And so, Lord, we pray you'd give us unusual courage. We pray you'd give us unusual love, and we pray by your Spirit you'd give us an unusual sense of our need in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.